Uh, I'm Luke Proctor. I'm the intern here at Christ the King. And uh, let's pray real quick. Dear Father, thank you so much uh, for this day. And thank you that we can come into your word. And I just pray that as we uh, look at this passage in Deuteronomy, that we'll remember that all scripture is breathed out by you and is teaching and shows us your grace and your plan for salvation. I pray that you'll be with the congregation today and as they'll take this message and as, over this course of this next week, uh, apply it in their lives uh, with your help and with the help of your spirit. And Father, thank you so much uh, for the good and uh, the love you show us on a daily basis. Amen. So please turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. This uh, passage follows the uh, horrible golden calf incident, and uh, Mo- this is uh, Moses addressing the people of Israel. So starting in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding for you today. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, a lot of us in here are sports fans, and if you pay attention to sports at a very high level, Division One and professional sports, you'll notice that they don't uh, quite resemble our congregation. These guys are huge, they're talented, they're either very fast or very strong, superhuman type people. And if you really pay attention to your favorite team occasionally, you'll notice actually that a couple of these players don't fit that description. There are a lot of kind of average Joes. Uh, they might be uh, a little bit slower, or a little bit weaker, or a little smaller than some of their teammates, but they still perform at this very high level. And the reason they perform at that high level is because they master the fundamentals of their sport. And, uh, you know, there's some very famous examples of that. Jerry Rice was born in Starkville, Mississippi, which is where Mississippi State University is. Pretty big football program in the SEC. Yet Jerry Rice went to an extremely tiny state school in Mississippi, wasn't even recruited out of college by his hometown team. And the reason was because scouts considered him too short for his speed. He was about two-tenths of a second slower 
than what uh, they were looking for with wide receivers. So he was either too short or too slow, uh, depending on what the scouts thought. But he mastered the fundamentals of being a wide receiver in football. He caught everything that was thrown to him, and he ran perfect passing routes. And because he mastered the fundamentals, he dominated college football and then became a legend at the NFL uh, for several years. And I think this passage in Deuteronomy is actually giving us the fundamentals that we are to master. It's boiling down the Christian religion by telling us what we're supposed to do, giving the requirements for us worshiping God with a promise that if we quit being stubborn and we worship God properly, God will be pleased with us. I think this text breaks down into thirds. There's the first part is telling us something we're supposed to do, giving us the requirements, giving us the fundamentals. Then there's the twist. The second part of the passage in verses uh, 14 through 16 tell us something we can't do, something we cannot do. And finally, in the conclusion, the passage tells us something we're called to do. And you can break that up with verses 17 through 22. So it's something we're supposed to do, something we can't do, and finally, something we're called to do. So please look at me at what we're supposed to do. This is our first point in verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding for you today for your good. So I immediately count five things there that we are supposed to do. Five fundamentals, five requirements. Fear the Lord, walk in His ways, love Him, serve Him, and then keep His law. So let's walk through what each of these requirements mean. Fear the Lord. The author of Deuteronomy is saying, you at least need to have some understanding of you in relation to God. The people of Israel relied on the Torah, the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the theme throughout those books is that there is a chasm between God and man. Jehovah, God is the creator. We are his creatures. He is the king. And the people of Israel are just his subjects. And that theme is continued in the rest of the Bible. David says God is a shepherd. We are his sheep. Uh, we are told by Paul that God is like a potter and we are simply clay objects. And so fear of the Lord means try to picture that gap between you and God. He is all-powerful. To the people of the Israel, they've just witnessed some incredible miracles in the Egyptian plagues. They've seen God even strike people dead. And so you must approach him with a reverence of the created being approaching the creator. Then we're told to walk in his ways. And if one of the reasons the people of Israel wants to follow God is that he's perfect, then you too are called, like God, to be perfect. Encounter every situation in life with fairness and wisdom, godliness. Don't be swayed by your emotions as God is not swayed by your emotions, but stay instead on the straight and narrow path. Then we're told to love him. Look at all the things God has done for the people of Israel. They're told to respond, to put him above all else, even their family. 
Treat His words like a treasure. Think of Him when you wake up and when you go to bed. Finally, we're told, I mean, fourthly, we're told to serve the Lord your God with your heart and soul. So please God and put your back into it. Give tithes and offerings. Help out your local congregation. Take care, take care of the elderly and the sick. And then we're told to keep His commandments and statutes. God expects you to keep His standards. He wrote every standard you could ever think of in the first five books of the law. So now that you have His standards, practice Him. Be unique in the world, He's telling the people of Israel. Be unique in your world uh, by, for instance, reading Leviticus. It called the nation of Israel to be disciplined in their diet, their relationships, their practice of their religion, their treatment of their leaders, their pastors, their employees, even their animals and their crops. The Hittites and the Canaanites and the Egyptians, well, they live one way, but the book of Leviticus and really the first five books of the Bible are telling the people of Israel to live another way. Study God's law and apply it to your daily life. Keep God's standards. So if verses 12 and 13 tell us what we are supposed to do, then verses 14 and 17 tell us why we are supposed to do it. And the answer is because God is unfathomably powerful. Look at verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. In other words, God is all-powerful, meaning you're not going to trick Him. You're under His domain, under His ultimate power. So the verses 12 and 13 beg the question, how good are you at mastering the fundamentals of those religion? of this religion? How good are you at those five things in verses 12 and 13 that God requires of you? Well, I think we can address that question one of two ways. Someone who didn't grow up in the church, uh, maybe he's not a believer, would look at those first five books of the Bible, they'd look at a book like Leviticus, and they would look at it in dismay. They are overwhelmed by its size and its detail, its scope. They immediately think of their inability to follow God's law and maybe assume the fetal position. Or they would look at the Torah and say, yes, that's, that's never going to happen and that's actually not good for me. It's not going to help me spiritually cope with life. And to these people, the law, those first five books, can seem like a wall. I just recently watched a documentary of this guy named Alex Hunhold. He's a free climber, which means he rock climbs without any gear, no helmet, no rope, and he climbs thousands of feet. He sets several world records, and his fundamentals are impeccable. He is master of the fundamentals of rock climbing, but, obviously, Alex Hunhold is not going to be a free climber forever. He's either going to have to retire from free climbing and start using equipment, or just quit altogether, or one day he will be free climbing, and he will slip on the rock face and fall. And that is how we look at the law. It can seem like a wall that we have to master the fundamentals for until the day we die. And if we slip up, there's nothing we can do. The other kind of person looks at the law, those first five books of the Bible, and kind of gives a thumbs up. They profess to understand the gospel. 
They would tell you that they believe in grace, but they also see the law. They agree with the parts about loving God, and they would say, hey, that describes me pretty darn accurately. I love God pretty well. They would say that the good they do covers the bad they do. There's a gap between those, and that they've mastered the fundamentals pretty well. And these people can use the law as a weapon. There's this really cheesy movie with Sylvester Stallone. He plays this title character named Judge Dredd. It's like this weird futuristic movie, but he's the ultimate judge. And what he says is the law. And he goes around zapping people. And every time he zaps someone, he says, I am the law. And then he'll go around and he goes, I am the law. And just zaps, zaps all the bad guys away. And that's what the law can turn us into is judges. It can turn us into someone and we want to zap someone when we see that they're blatantly not following the law, not following the law as well as we are. And, uh, you know, we see the ramifications of that and can become like the Pharisees that Jesus will encounter in the New Testament. And then, of course, we can also be on both sides. I uh, look up at the law as a wall when I'm weak and as a weapon when I'm strong. The other day, Dana uh, and I were talking, and I was uh, venting about some issues I was having at work, and she goes, you know, Luke, I think you need to do a better job at showing grace uh, to your coworkers. And I shot right back, and I said, well, you know what? People at work don't show me a lot of grace. And I'd immediately use the law, the call for love and grace on other people as a weapon. But then, at other times, I'll look at my the law and my inability to follow it, and I'll say, yeah, that's not going to happen. It's a huge stumbling block, and it's not even worth attempting. So it can be a weapon, do this, do that, because God says so. And it can be a, a wall where we just give up. So what are we to do? Well, we get to look at the text a little closer and move to the second part of the passage, because right in the middle of being overwhelmed or being judgmental, there's another instruction, another fundamental that allows us to get out of our problems. It solves our problems because it's something we can't do. And this is the second point, something we can't do. Please look with me in verses 14 and 16 through 16. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet, the Lord set his heart on love, in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So circumcise your heart. Now, I think we can agree that we can't circumcise your, our hearts, but what in the world does that mean and why would it ever provide us relief? Why is that such an important fundamental for us? Well, circumcision, in a very general way, is removing something that is both natural and unnecessary through surgery. Now, there's a more specific definition, and if you have any questions about that, you can ask anyone about it except me, maybe a doctor. But it's very clear that the author of Deuteronomy is not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. I think we recognize that right off the bat. We're being told to circumcise our hearts. In other words, we're being asked to do the impossible because to change your heart is to change your entire soul, to change who you are. 
And that's not something we can do. You know, there's a lot of things about myself, both physical appearance-wise or personality-wise, that I try to minimize on a daily basis, but I'm not going to get rid of them because I'm not going to change who I am. And you can't change who you are. A circumcising the heart is calling for that complete spiritual change. It's a total surgical revision. Now, how does that revision take place? How is this fundamental in the life of a Christian executed? Well, we're now celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And over the last 500 years, something God has allowed the Protestant church to reclaim is this idea of unconditional election. Unconditional election meaning that before we were born, before we had done anything good or bad, God chose us by His grace to be part of His people. Now, we can immediately struggle with the idea of unconditional election, and if we don't have a lot of questions about it, or we don't struggle with it, maybe we're not thinking about it hard enough. However, the reason we struggle with it is because sometimes we think of it solely in the context of the New Testament, as this idea that was introduced perhaps in Romans 8 and 9. And we immediately try to settle this idea that God electing his people with our own conversion experience. We think that either A, my conversion experience meant that I turned away from sin and I declared Jesus as my Savior and my Lord through my own free will, or on the flip side of the coin, we think election means that perhaps I'm a robot and God just chooses some people to love Him and He chooses some people to reject Him and our roles are already fulfilled. What we don't consider is this idea that the people of Israel, from Abraham all the way to Jesus, had no issues with the concept of unconditional election. And they didn't have any issues with the idea of unconditional election because they were born into the people of Israel knowing that nothing distinguished them from the Hittites or the Canaanites or the Egyptians in terms of their performance or what was actually inside of them. Even the external sign of God's covenant with Abraham, physical circumcision, did not remove the crud in the heart of Israel. It didn't change what was actually inside of them. Because in terms of their ability to worship God, in terms of their fulfilling the fundamentals laid out in verses 12 and 13, Israel is just as bad at it as anyone else. They will create golden calves. They will create Asherah poles. And one day their king and queen will even worship Baal, who's just a completely made-up God. So Israel can't worship God any better than anybody else. At the time this passage is being written, Israel has just made the golden calf. You know, they have recently been freed from slavery, and instead they choose to worship something of their own creation, despite the fact that God freed them from Egypt, and then collapsed a sea that he had split in two on the Egyptian army to save them. But we understand this concept. We understand their stubbornness because we are tempted to reject God every day. The people of Israel, stubbornness is easy to identify with because the freedom from Egypt is the ultimate symbol in the Old Testament of our conversion. And we understand what it's like because we also want to turn back to slavery. 
We want to turn around, despite our conversion experience, despite the grace God gives us, and turn right back and make, do our own version of the golden calf. Now, upon seeing the golden calf, Moses, coming down from a literal mountaintop experience, where he's just received the Ten Commandments from God, uh, is so furious with the nation of Israel that he smashes the tablets in front of them, symbolizing their inability to get the fundamentals right. The first one saying, you will have no God except for me. You will only worship Jehovah, the true God. Now, shortly after this incident, God has Moses make a second set of tablets for the commandments. And despite the total rebellion of Israel against God, he informs Moses that he will not destroy them. Now, he does call them stubborn. And in verses, uh, and that, that should make us perhaps a little nervous. Because when God calls us stubborn, and we read about him in the Old Testament and what he does to stubborn people, he can seem quite tyrannical. But I would also encourage you to go back and read the parables Chuck just preached on over the course of this last few weeks. Because when we read Jesus, he also lays down the law on people who are stubborn. Jesus, we can get nervous when we read him because he demands perfection. Time and again in his parables, he says that if we mistreat others, if we worship ourselves, if we do not consider God in our daily lives, we will be thrown into a fire, or we will be locked out of a house in the cold, or we'll be gnashing our teeth. That's some very serious talk from our Lord and Savior. But what's the fix to the problem of being stubborn? Are verses 12 and 13 the end-all, be-all of this passage? Is being perfect what we're called to do? Is Israel told that if they simply improve on the fundamentals, then God will love them, period, end stop, end of story? No, it doesn't. It says they are in need of spiritual surgery. They are in need of circumcising their hearts or in need of this heart change. You know, verses 14, 15, and 17 are almost tongue-in-cheek. Look at the transition from verse 14 to verse 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, and the earth and all that is in it. In other words, saying, God is all-powerful. God will come down on you for not following these fundamentals. And then look at verse 15. Yet, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Ultimately, the people of Israel, through unconditional election, receive God's grace. That's the only way heart change will take effect. They need an outside source to free them, not just from Egypt, but the slavery of their sins. And the author is telling Israel that God's grace allows him to love them despite the rebellions. And God's grace allows him to love us despite our rebellions, despite our own golden calf incidents, despite our worshiping Baal moments. The things that you hide, the things that you keep secret to yourself, your most embarrassing moments in terms of your relationship with God, He loves you anyways because of His grace. He removes the sin 
God is the one who circumcises the darkness from your heart. The only thing this passage does not discuss is how that exactly takes place. And this is the neatest part of studying the Old Testament. Because most passages in the Old Testament are bookmarked and are returned to hundreds of years later. Please turn your Bibles with me to Colossians 2, where for part two of this passage, the topic of circumcising your hearts is picked up by the Apostle Paul. He tells us exactly how Israel and us receive God's grace. Uh, It's going to be Colossians 2, verse 11 through 14. So starting with uh, Colossians 2, verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul, like the author of Deuteronomy, rises above the physical nature of circumcision, and focuses on the spiritual nature of the circumcised hearts. And we see the full ramifications of what verse 16, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, is pointing to. And that's Jesus Christ. Christ's death is what removes our flesh, our sinful nature, and the sins we commit on an almost daily basis. And this sinful nature is surgically removed and is nailed to the cross where Jesus bears the pain for our sin and we are healed. And we aren't just healed, we rise with Jesus Christ, as Paul says, to become sons and daughters of God. So we've talked about what we are supposed to do. And we've talked about the issues of how the law can either become a weapon where we become judgmental or a wall where we assume the fetal position and can't handle it. Now we're told that there is this last fundamental, the circumcising of our hearts where Jesus, through his death and resurrection, removes our sin and gives us freedom and life. So now we'll conclude very quickly by talking about what we are called to do as a result of God's grace. So what are we called to do? Back in Deuteronomy uh, Chapter 10, verses 18 through 22 tell us what we are called to do after God has called us to be among his people. Now, verses 20 through 22 are very similar to 12 and 13. And that's interesting because our, the fundamentals of our faith don't go away when, after our conversion. But only after our conversion can we understand the meaning of goodness the meaning of contentment, and the meaning of grace, and the true meaning of loving God. So those requirements now are done out of grace, not in a way to please God, to try to avoid eternal punishment, or to look ourselves in the mirror. We're simply responding to the love 
he's shown us. But I want to quickly highlight the uniqueness of the last third of the passage. Because verses 18 and 19, there's nothing like them found in verses 12 and 13. And what we are called to do, it says in verse 18, is he, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So love the sojourner. Now, who is a sojourner, we ask? And I think Jesus got a similar question when someone asked him, who is my neighbor? So I think this calls us to love the unconverted. Love the non-believer. And love the people who are going to be surprised that you, as a Christian, are going to be loving them the most and caring for them. So love the marginalized that you come in contact with. Love the poor. Love the sick. And we can all start on this list of what it means to love people who make us uncomfortable. I came up with a small list right here. Love the liberal and love the Trump supporter. Love people in the LGBT community. Love the undocumented immigrant, but also love the Border Patrol agent. And when I say loved them, I mean to be their friend. To come alongside them and encourage them and lift them up. Because most of all, what loving the sojourner means is to try to attempt to assign value to people just like God assigned value to you. And this returns us to this idea of grace. Because why did God assign value to us? Why did God choose us to be his people? Remember, the passage really stresses that God is not partial. And he takes no bribe. And you and I are stubborn. Which means he didn't choose us because we were right about anything. God didn't choose you because you were right about one issue or the other in a political argument. Or because you're a smart person. Or because you kept your sins hidden better. Or you lived in a society where your sins were less noticeable than the sins of others. He doesn't think the good you do covers your bad. He chose you out of pure grace and love. And so I encourage you this week to share that love and assign that value to people in your life who need it the most. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day. And thank you for your word. Lord, as we go throughout this week, help us uh, to love others as you loved us. Not accepting what they do as the right thing, but accepting who they are as valuable creatures, just as you assign value to us despite our sins. And Father, I pray that your gospel will be real in our lives this week that your glory will shine through us despite our flaws and despite our sins. And Father, thank you for your word that we can come back to each day for refreshment and a reorientation to the truth. Amen.